Last week, David spoke about Paul's experience in Athens. We learned that the Athenians spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to new ideas. We heard something about Epicureans and Stoics. And whilst Paul most definitely brought something new to their ears, it was not what they wanted to hear. So this week, we will learn of Paul's experience of Corinth, where he confronted an altogether different challenge. I've entitled the message, A Faithful God. And you'll see why, I hope, as the message proceeds. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 18, and I will read to you from the first verse. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he too was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul then devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, however, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourself. I will not be judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him up in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Contained within this passage is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I'll leave you to imagine what that might be, but I'll give you the answer later. Now, during the rediscovery course that we run as a church, we identify areas where biblical accounts and contemporary historians agree. This account is one such as the expulsion of Jews from Rome by Claudius is also written about by Roman historians Suetonius, Suetonus, and subsequently Cassius Deo. This was not the first expulsion of Jews from Rome. It had happened in 139 BC 
and later in AD 19 under Tiberius. On previous occasions, it was because the Romans disapproved of the Jews' proselytizing activities amongst Gentiles. Now, whilst the expulsion of Jews from Rome in this case is largely attested by scholars, as ever, their interpretation of events vary. The Romans were inclined to view Christianity as some kind of Jewish sect, and certainly in the mid-first century. So we cannot be sure if Claudius was objecting to Jewish behavior or that of Christians, or one towards the other. Incidentally, the Claudius of whom we read in verse 2 was an interesting character. He was affected by a limp and deafness due to sickness at a young age. These conditions probably saved him from the fate of many other nobles during the purges of Tiberius and Caligula's reigns. He was not seen as a serious threat. He was declared emperor, however, after Caligula's assassination. And although lacking experience, he was well-educated and he constructed many roads and other structures across the empire. The end result of all these things was Paul met the Jew Achilla and his wife Priscilla, of whom Richard will speak in more detail next week. He was a tent maker, which trade Paul shared, and so he was able to work there and generate funds. It's of significance that though Paul often speaks of gifts from one church community to another, he never speaks of his own needs. He was essentially self-supporting. It was, however, not only in financial regard that Paul felt depleted. In 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 3, he speaks of weakness, fear, and much trembling when coming to Corinth. You'll recall from earlier sermons we've heard that he wanted to preach in the province of Asia, but was kept by the Holy Spirit from so doing. Similarly, he was constrained not to visit Bithynia, but eventually had a vision of a man in Macedonia. Things didn't go smoothly there either, with Paul and Silas falsely accused in Philippi and suffering an uproar in Thessalonica, eventually fleeing to Berea. That too was fraught, and Paul ended up in Athens, where he was met with ridicule and scant response, as we heard last week. That was probably harder to bear than open opposition. At least when people oppose you, you know where you stand. But when it's cynicism and ridicule, then it's very distracting and discouraging. Corinth to where he'd proceeded alone, was a prosperous commercial crossroads. At the time, there were some 200,000 residents there from all over the Roman Empire. Also, the Temple of Aphrodite was there, with a 1,000 or so so-called temple prostitutes. The city had become so noted for its immorality that in the 5th century BC, the Greeks even coined the verb to Corinthianize, meaning to commit sexual immorality. So, after a difficult series of prior events, Corinth was ever likely to present Paul with fresh challenges, and so it proved to be. You have to feel for Paul. And in verse 4 that we just read, where it says, Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. The difficulties he was suffering with that congregation, their hardness of heart and their stiff-neckedness, are clearly inferred in those words. When his good friends Silas and Timothy arrived, however, a ray of light broke in. They brought good news about the strength of the church in Macedonia and a generous gift from the church in Philippi. You can read about that in Philippians 
4 verses 10 to 14. That enabled Paul to devote himself to preaching. But as we heard, the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive. What was his response? He shook out his coat in protest. This is a step beyond the shaking off of the dust of his feet, which we heard about a few weeks ago when Paul and Barnabas left Antioch. He shook his coat out in protest. I've had enough of you. I am clear of my responsibilities, he said. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Curiously, Paul found an opportunity right next door to the synagogue in the home of Titius Justus, a new Gentile believer. And there was encouragement, too, in the conversion of Crispus, one of the senior leaders in the synagogue. It's said that his entire household believed. We're then told that many Corinthians believed and were baptized. This is significant. The communities that responded, they believed and then they were baptized. And this issue of baptism is important. And I want to dwell there just for a moment. Because there are some of us here who need to take this step. We need to be baptized. It's not an optional extra. In Muslim and Jewish communities, if individuals there are converted, that's pretty difficult for them. But when they choose to be baptized, then they are severed from their communities. Even my own grandmother, though she was a secular Jew and not a practicing Jew, she was converted and became a Christian in Hamburg in the 1930s and was secretly baptized there by a Lutheran pastor. Had that been known about, she would have been persecuted as a Jew by the Nazis and she would have been persecuted by the Jews for having reneged upon their convictions and tradition. Baptism is important. Baptism is a statement upon earth and it resonates in the heavens because it delineates where we stand. We baptize men in the prison and it's always significant because when they are baptized, then they're seen by their peers in prison as having taken a step from which they do not return. The baptistry here in this church should be far more used than it is. And my challenge to you this morning, if you've not been baptized, is that you should consider that. And you should make arrangements and you should be baptized. It is not something to be neglected. And if, like me, you were christened as an infant in which you had no part, possibly even confirmed as a teenager, in my case before I believed, you should consider where you stand in this regard. I was baptized as an adult. My parents would have nothing to do with it, which was a sadness to me, even though my mother had been baptized as a believer, following in the footsteps of her own mother. So consider that, please. Not because I say it, but because God requires it of you. Paul, we might imagine, was fearful that the established pattern was simply repeating itself. He would be welcomed, he would be greeted, then there would be opposition, and eventually he'd have to flee for his life. You can be sure that if somebody of Paul's conviction and experience felt emotions such as these, then we shall all have to endure them as well. The key is this, that God is always found faithful in such times. So let's just consider this principle of God being faithful to his servants. Firstly, God is always faithful in providing co-workers. We spoke about Achilla and Priscilla earlier. 
They became loyal companions to Paul. We hear of them again after traveling with Paul to Ephesus, where they hosted a church in their home. That's in 1 Corinthians 16. Something they did subsequently in Rome after their eventual return. Paul notes that they risked their lives for his sake, and they were appreciated by all the Gentile churches. You can read about that in Romans chapter 16. And in one of the last things he wrote before his execution, Paul sends greetings to this couple. You can read about that in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. So do not underestimate the value of loyal friendship. The gospel can be a lonely business if you find yourself isolated. You might be the instrument of friendship and loyalty to somebody who's engaged in that process. Do not underestimate the value of your role. We heard how Silas and Timothy arriving, who were close companions, that brought Paul much needed encouragement. Secondly, God is faithful in providing for our needs. As we mentioned already, Paul didn't advertise his own needs, even if he did draw attention to the needs of others or the churches. When he ran out of personal funds, he'd simply make tents until God provided what he needed. So please, beware of tokenism. We must all live by faith and not be reliant on our own resources. Thirdly, God is faithful to bring converts even in the face of opposition. Now, Paul faced strong opposition, and yet God graciously brought several to salvation. Elsewhere, if you read, Paul lists colorful candidature as making up the church. The truth is this. Where sin abounds, God's grace can superabound. We read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increases, grace increased all the more. Fourthly, God is faithful in confirming his presence. And this is perhaps the most enthralling from this passage. And we come in this to the verses I identified as being amongst my favorites in the New Testament. When Paul needed it most, God appeared to him in a vision and encouraged him in an indisputable way. There it is in verses 9 and 10. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, this is one of six visions that Paul received in Acts, all of which came at critical times. We're not talking here about a feeling or a strong impression or an intellectual judgment. Rather, Paul actually saw Jesus Christ and heard him speak audibly. This is at the pinnacle of all revelation, and it's not something that God orchestrates lightly. We'll dwell on this for a while. What? Did God confirm to Paul in this? Firstly, his presence. For I am with you, he says. Secondly, his protection. No one is going to attack and harm you. He doesn't say that nobody's going to attack you. That would be nonsense because Paul was attacked regularly. Nobody is going to attack and harm you. Because I will protect you. And finally, his purpose. These are the three things. Because I have many people in this city. He had to keep on speaking. Now, not all of those people 
were yet believers. Not all of those people had found their place in the kingdom. They'd been chosen by God. They'd been identified by God. Now, some argue this, this doctrine of election works against evangelism because if God has chosen people, then it's a done deal. But that neglects the fact that God has not only ordained their salvation, but also the means by which it will be fulfilled, namely the preaching of the gospel, of which David spoke clearly last week. Fifthly, God is faithful even when those who govern are apathetic or we confront hostile enemies. Now, God was specific. You will be attacked. You will not be attacked and harmed. As I said a few moments ago, he did not say you would not suffer opposition or not suffer attack, but rather that he would not be harmed. Whilst the Jews brought Paul before the proconsul Gallio on the pretext of teaching people to violate the law, Gallio, however, would have none of it, as he correctly perceived the issue to be a religious conflict And he dismissed them. Quite why Sosthenes was beaten up then is unclear. But that didn't influence Gallio either. All of these evidences of God's faithfulness bring us to one outcome and one outcome only. And it is this. God's servant should be faithful in serving him in spite of difficulties. As in so many other instances in the Bible, God would not have told Paul not to be afraid unless he was afraid. Would be a meaningless injunction otherwise, wouldn't it? Now, if Paul could feel fear in confronting his task, then any of us can be afraid. But a lack of fear is necessary if we are faithfully to declare the gospel. We're not called to needless contention, but there are painful truths in God's word. And if we fudge that truth, then we're not being faithful to him. The gospel is not God loves you and wants you to have a happy life. Rather, It is that you are a lost sinner, alienated from a holy God. And the only remedy for your sin is the shared blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sin and trust in Christ to be saved from the judgment of God that is to come. Here is the sobering truth. If we do not confront sinners with their sin, then we are not preaching the gospel. So what shall we say in conclusion? From this passage, we discover Paul in vulnerability. All of us will suffer vulnerability. Maybe some of us right now. He was prone to fear and suffering, perhaps from the weight of all that he was carrying. Mindful of that vulnerability, God works in various ways to reinforce 
the awareness of his faithfulness, culminating in this breathtaking affirmatory vision that we shared earlier. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Do you ever feel fearful? Well, you're in good company if you do. And do you ever lack confidence? <laughs> well, take heart in the faithfulness of God that we have considered and looked at in this passage. Amen.